should be fairly easy to find. It's the last book in the Bible, uh, Revelation 17. While you're finding it, um, let me recap a little bit what we've covered so far. Uh, One of the advantages of the way in which I preach is that it's slow enough that we can understand what each individual part of the Bible says. But one of the disadvantages is that it's slow enough that you can forget the context uh, where we're in. Uh, So, um, you know, especially since last week I took a week off, it'll be good for me too to remind ourselves where we have been in this book. So way back in February, my first sermon on this book, um, I pointed out this truth that I think has been borne out, that the details in Revelation can be confusing, but the main message of the book is clear. It was clearly stated in chapter 1, the first few verses, in verses 5 through 8, where John writes this, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And we talked that first week This is what the book is about. This book is about the gospel. Verse 5, it says, Him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Okay, we see this throughout the book. It's about the gospel. Jesus dying for us, taking the wrath of God that we deserve. This book is about the return of Jesus. Verse 7, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And this book is about God's absolute control over all things. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. So I told you when we started, that's what this book is about. The details might get confusing, but we're going to see these themes throughout the whole book. Jesus died for us. Uh, He's coming back, and God is in control. And as we worked through the book, we saw this. In chapters 2 and 3, there were messages to the churches, giving them encouragement for what is to come. And then in chapter 4, the book just took off. (laughs) And John goes to heaven in a vision, and he sees... In heaven, God on his throne, and the message of that was God is in control. He's on his throne. And then he sees Jesus, but Jesus is seen as a lamb who was slain. And the message there is Jesus died for your sins. This is the gospel. And then the rest of the book is all about Jesus coming back. And we get multiple pictures of the return of Jesus. First, it's depicted as these seals on a scroll with seven seals. And the seals get opened one after another. Each new seal brings a new judgment until the last seal is opened and it culminates in the wrath of God being poured out against evil. And then we see seven trumpets being blown, and one by one the trumpets are blown, and each trumpet announces a new judgment, and God's wrath is finally comes after the seventh trumpet and pours out on all evil. Okay, and then right when we start to get the pattern of, of sevens, there's a break in the action. In chapter 12, we meet some new characters that I've called the unholy trinity, we meet the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And the dragon is Satan. The, the beast is the power of the government used by Satan to persecute Christians. And the false prophet is the propaganda machine lying to us to try to get us to follow the government. And in those chapters, what we saw was John peeling back the curtain of reality to say that this world is not just about evil people doing evil things, but there are systems of evil, powers of evil behind it that are causing people to do evil. There's this cosmic battle between the lamb and the dragon. And in chapter 14, 
We saw that when you see this cosmic battle, you realize that there are just two kinds of people in the world. There are those that follow the lamb and those that follow the dragon. And those that follow the lamb, when Jesus returns, will experience joy forever with him, and those who follow the dragon will experience the wrath of God. And then two weeks ago, my last sermon, we, we saw in chapter 15, that starting with chapter 15 and then going almost to the end of the book, to chapter 20, we get this final outpouring of the wrath of God. And it's a good thing. Because God is acting like a loving father who is finally standing up to the bullies who have been hurting his children. And he finally says to these forces of evil, enough is enough. And now one by one, he begins to take out the bad guys. He deals with the beast and the false prophets and the dragon and all his followers. And then finally, he destroys death itself. But that's in chapter 20. I'm getting ahead. Today, today we're in the middle of this second to last section of the wrath of God being poured out in judgment on evil. And in chapter 17, where we are today, we meet a new character who has a very pretty face. But as we read about her, I don't want you to be fooled by her good looks. She's evil, and she needs to be stopped. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then I'll hit the major points. As always, if you have questions about things I say or don't say, feel free to ask them and put them in the box in the back. Revelation 17 says this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. Five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The water that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. 
And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Right. So we're introduced to a new character here, this woman. So I want to start by asking the big questions. We've asked these sort of questions before when we meet new characters. Um, The big question is, first, who or what does this woman represent? And then after we figure that out, I want to give you four things from this passage that God wants you to know about this woman. First, who or what does this woman represent? Um, It's not that complicated, but it's a very rich symbol. It's got layers to it. So there's going to be a three-part answer to this. First of all, she represents Babylon. She represents Babylon. That's the easiest one to see. Um, Actually, as we've been studying Revelation, Babylon's been mentioned a few times. I've just kind of glossed over it because I knew we were going to get here. But but this one's been mentioned a little bit before. If you actually just look a page back in chapter 14, verse 8, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. Now, if you read, again, the beginning of our passage, chapter 17, verse 2, he says, She's the one with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual morality, with the wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Okay, so, you see, it's talking about the same place. Chapter 14 called Babylon. Here it's just called the prostitute. Um, That seems a little too obscure for you. Um, Very helpfully, um, her name is actually written on her forehead. I don't know if you caught that in verse 5, chapter 17. It says, on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great. I think that would be a great rule for Revelation in the future. Like, anytime there's a symbol, could you just write the name on it? That would be a little more helpful. Um, There's some symbols in earlier chapters. I wish we had the name written on them. So, okay, she's got her name written on her forehead. She represents Babylon. Uh, But it's not, that's not the whole picture. This, this This symbol has layers. She represents Babylon, but she also represents Rome. Uh, It's not quite as obvious. She doesn't have the name Rome written on her forehead, but it's still not that difficult. If you look at verse 18 at the end of the chapter, it says, The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, in John's day, writing that, there's one city that fits that description. It's Rome. The Roman Empire controlled the known world. There's one city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. It's Rome. There's also a dead giveaway in verse 9 where it says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Okay? Anybody who knows anything about Rome knows it's built on seven mountains. It was a description of Rome. It's, it's, it's well known. If you say that this, this woman is sitting on seven mountains, say, oh, that woman's Rome. Okay? It'd be like me saying uh, today, the woman uh, was holding a big apple and sitting on some islands. What city would that be? New York City, right? It's obvious to us. We know it's just a symbolism that's part of our culture. So but they would know this woman, is, it's, okay, she's on seven mountains, you're talking about Rome. So the woman represents Babylon, she represents Rome. But there's a third level here, because these cities themselves represent something. 
Okay? He's not just talking about physical locations like Babylon in Iraq or Rome in Italy. He's saying these cities themselves represent things, which again is something that we do even today. Okay? When I talk about physical locations like Wall Street, okay, that's a real place. right? There is a literal street called Wall Street in New York, but most of the time when we talk about Wall Street, we're not referring to that physical place. We're using it symbolically. Sometimes we talk about just high finance. Sometimes we talk, use it as a symbol for greed, too, right? Okay, it's a symbolic use. Hollywood, physical place. There's really a place called Hollywood in Los Angeles. But when we talk about Hollywood, we don't usually mean that physical address. We mean entertainment, you know, movies, uh, a symbol for, uh, for that whole complex. Silicon Valley is another example. Silicon Valley is a real place near San Francisco. But when we talk about Silicon Valley today, we don't mean a physical place. We mean it's a symbol for the high-tech industry. Okay? So in the same way, Babylon and Rome are both physical historic cities, but they're also symbols of the same thing. They're symbols of the world. The world. So that's the third thing that this woman represents. She represents the world. When I say that, when I say the world, I mean that in a very specific sense. Because the world can mean multiple things, right? When you talk about the world, you can, you can refer to just the whole created world, the, the earth, this blue marble that we're all living on, right? As in, you know, God created the world. Okay, that's one sense of it. Another sense is everybody, you know, all the people, like God so loved the world. Okay, in that sense, it just means everybody. Okay, but there's another specific sense, a biblical sense, that I'm using it here today. It means the sinful society opposed to God. The dominion of Satan. Sinful society opposed to God. The world, as in Satan is king of the world. It's that sense in which I mean that Babylon and Rome are a symbol of the world. They're symbols of sinful society opposed to God. They're symbols of humanity under Satan's authority living in rebellion against God. This is the sense it's used in 1 John 2, 1 John 2.15, very famous passage. You've probably heard it. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It's, it's a rich passage. In some ways, it's just the non-metaphorical version of our passage today. Just John shooting straight saying, here's, here's the deal. <laughs> Do not love the world. The world, it's the opposite of God. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it's the opposite of God. It's opposed to God. You can't love God and the world. It's the source of evil. He says, from the love of the world comes the, uh, from, from the, world comes the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All this evil comes from the world. Not from God, but from the world. Later in 1 John verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
Okay, what does he mean when he says the world? Who's the one in the world? Satan, right? So he's saying God is in you. Greater is God than Satan. God is in you. Greater is he that's in you than he who's in the world. So the world is the realm of Satan. The world is opposed to God. The world is a sinful society opposed to God. And I'm saying that's what the woman, Babylon, Rome, represents. Okay, now how did Babylon get that honor? We understand why Wall Street is a symbol for high finance, right? Because all the banks are on Wall Street. Right? Uh, we get why Hollywood represents the entertainment industry because that's where all the movie studios are. Okay? Silicon Valley represents the high-tech industry because they all have their headquarters there. So why is Babylon the symbol of the world? Um, well, first of all, it, it's a symbol of uh, sinful society opposed to God because Babylon was a sinful society opposed to God. It was a bad place. Uh, Babylon was the capital city of a powerful empire in the ancient world. They didn't worship God. They did lots of evil things. They were pretty bad. But by the same token, they weren't any worse than other empires of that day. They were all bad. So why did Babylon become this symbol? Well, in in, uh, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon invaded Jerusalem. And when he did, he destroyed the temple, killed a bunch of people, and took the rest of the Jews into captivity into Babylon. And that terrible, traumatic event uh, in, in the history of the Jewish people became such a powerful, traumatic memory. It left such an impression culturally for them that from that moment on, Babylon became the symbol for the bad guys in the Old Testament. They were the go-to symbol for a godless and wicked society. It's sort of like how we, in our culture, talk about Hitler today. I mean, Hitler was a really bad guy. Okay, hear me saying that. He was a really bad guy. But there have been other really, really bad people in history. And yet for us, in our culture, it just seems that his atrocities have been so burned into our cultural memories that anytime there's another scary or evil person on the horizon, we don't say, he's going to be another Stalin. We say, he's another Hitler. Okay? Because that's just, Hitler's more than just a person. He's a symbol. He's the evil person. And in the Bible, Babylon is the evil society. They're a symbol of the world. And that's why in verse 5, when it says the name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, he calls her the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. John is not saying that all the evil in the world comes from a literal city in Iraq two hours south of Baghdad. He's saying it comes from the world. All the evil comes from the world. It comes from the sinful society opposed to God. That's what Babylon's a symbol of. And that's what Rome's a symbol of. Because for Christians in the first century, Rome was Babylon. In fact, if you, a little extra credit, if you look in 1 Peter 5, you can see Peter using Babylon as a code word for Rome. They're both symbols of this world, this sinful society opposed to God. So you see this woman, she's a symbol, she's a rich symbol. She's Babylon, she's Rome, she's the world. And if I'm right about this, this has a big payout for us. 
Because this means then that Revelation 17 is incredibly relevant for you and for me today. Because you and I live in Babylon. Right? We, obviously, we don't live in physical Babylon. You know, checking your GPS, like, really? I thought I was in Metamore. No, we, we live in symbolic Babylon. You know, Babylon was the mother of prostitutes. She had a lot of kids. They all took up the family business, and we're living in one of them. We live in a sinful society that is opposed to God. And so we see, once again, as we take the time to uh, analyze Revelation and hear it on its own terms, we find it is not just about stuff in the distant past or in the distant future, but it's relevant to our lives here and now, and we need to hear, how do we live in Babylon? What do we need to know about life in this world? And so that's the second big question today. What do we need to know about the world? Four things. Four things today. First, you've got to know that the world is trying to seduce you away from Jesus. The world's trying to seduce you away from Jesus. That's the point of this particular imagery, right? It's a common biblical picture. Throughout the Bible, God talks about himself a lot as a faithful and loving husband. One example, Isaiah 54, 5. It says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. Your maker is your husband. This is how the Bible talks about God and his relationship with us. He is our loving, faithful spouse. Related to this, The Bible also talks about our abandonment of God in terms of prostitution and adultery. So when God wants to describe what it's like for people to leave him, he uses the language of adultery and prostitution. I'm trying to keep this sermon PG, so I'm not going to read them for you, but you can write it down. Some places where he talks like this, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 16, the book of Hosea, You can read those on your own. Um, You can just take my word for it for now. But what the Bible is trying to communicate is that God is our faithful husband who loves us. He loves us. He wants what's best for us. He has a wholesome, life-giving relationship for us. But while he's there offering a life-giving, good, uh, spousal love for us, Babylon, the world, is trying to seduce us. Babylon doesn't love you, but it's trying to seduce you. It's tempting you to be unfaithful, to turn away from God, to trade this precious relationship that you have with him for something temporary, like money or pleasure or power. The world, unlike God, doesn't love you. It's trying to seduce you. That's why she's called a prostitute. Now, this is one of Satan's main techniques to try to trip up people to try to keep them away from jesus one of his techniques we've studied in depth it's it's the beast right the harsh power of the beast in chapter 13 we met the beast it's the it's the government and sometimes satan uses the power of the state to try to get people to not follow jesus so he says stuff like you can't share the gospel or you're going to be thrown into jail you know unless you renounce your faith you won't be allowed to buy or sell okay If you convert to Christianity, you will be killed. 
Okay, Satan uses that technique and is using it all around the world today to get people to not follow Jesus. But it's not the only tool in his arsenal. Sometimes he uses the harsh power of the beast, but sometimes he uses the seductive attraction of the prostitute. He uses the subtle temptations of the world, not to threaten us into walking away from Jesus, but to seduce us. That's what the world does, and you have to know that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to seduce you. And sometimes it works because the world is incredibly attractive. That's the second thing you need to know about the world. The world is incredibly attractive. Look at verse 4 as the woman is described. The first half. So the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. This is not a trashy lady. She's not repulsive. She looks good. She's high class. She looks like the sort of woman that women want to be, that guys want to be with. She's wearing purple and scarlet. Those are expensive, rich, good-looking clothes. She's covered in jewels and pearls and gold. She's holding a golden cup. Looks so good. On the outside, the woman looks desirable. She looks attractive. And that's true of the world, too. The world looks attractive. The temptations of this world look attractive. The temptations of the world do not advertise themselves honestly. They try to fool you. For example, the temptation towards greed does not come up to you and say, hey, I'm greed. Full disclosure, if you give your life to me, you will never have enough. You're going to keep buying and buying more stuff and never be satisfied. It's going to cost you a lot. Get used to being in debt. Uh, you're just going to have to work more and more to pay for all the stuff you have, and the financial stress that you get from all this is going to ruin your family. Okay? That's not how temptation appears. Instead, the temptation to greed comes subtly, seductively. It says, look at that house. Look at that car. Look at that family who has the things you don't have. Don't they look happy? Wouldn't your life be better if you just had what they have? I mean, you don't need a lot. We're just talking like a new car or maybe just a new phone or furniture that matches. Wouldn't that be nice? Right? That's how it comes. It comes subtly. It comes seductively. Adultery doesn't say, I'm going to ruin your life and scar your kids for the next decade. It says, you deserve to be happy. Alcohol doesn't say, I'm going to make all your problems worse. It says, I'm going to make your problems better. That's how the world comes. This world is attractive. And we are residents of Babylon. We live in this world. So daily, we are bombarded with the beauty of the world. And the music we listen to, the advertisements that we can't escape, the shows that we watch, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. They're attractive, they're seductive, and they're so well-packaged, they're so well-done that they make me think that sin is not that bad, and obedience to Jesus isn't what it's cracked up to be. And I start to think, if my life was just more like the lives of the people I see on TV, then it would be better. But it's not true. It's not true. 
Because though the world looks good on the outside, on the inside it's pure evil. Second half of verse 4, it says, She's holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. What's inside the cup? Not delicious wine. N.T. Wright is one author. He captures the flavor of this when he says, quote, The goblet is full of urine, dung, and blood. Sorry about the nasty words, but perhaps I should have used even nastier ones. It's truly disgusting. She looks good. The cup looks good. Hey, you want a drink? But when she offers you a sip, it's foul, it's filth, it's evil. And of course she's evil, right? I mean, did you notice what she was writing? Verse 3, He carried me away in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. So the woman looks good, but she's riding the beast. The beast is a symbol, uh, 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 is a servant of Satan. She's a servant of Satan. And her goal is not your good, but your destruction. In verse 6, it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She doesn't love you. The world doesn't love you. She's a prostitute. You're just a meal ticket for her. She's a vampire prostitute. She wants to drink your blood. Right? I mean, this is disgusting. Even though she's pretty, in the end, she will destroy you. The picture that I get, and just popped in my mind immediately as I was studying this, was of the angler fish. You know about this? It's like a deep sea creature, just truly disgusting fish. Uh, there's levels of weirdness to the fish I can't even get into today, but it's just a crazy, crazy fish. It's ugly. It's got these nasty pointy teeth. It can open its jaw twice this, its own size to swallow prey bigger than it. Um, but here's how it, it gets the prey because it has this growth coming out of its head with a little fluorescent bulb at the end of it. And so it's swimming around the deep, deep, dark ocean. And it's got this little bulb hanging in front of it. And the other fish can't see this fish because it's dark. It's the ocean's way down there. But it sees a little light. It's like, oh, that light, that looks pretty. I wonder what that is. I'm going to go check that out. And the fish swims up to check out the light and <laughs> dinner, right? That's what the woman is, okay? She's the shiny light luring people in so that Satan can devour them. It's so important that we get this because we are residents of Babylon. We live in a place where there are millions of shiny lights all around us. And they look pretty. Well, that looks nice. That looks like fun. Maybe I should go, I'll just go check that out. Just, just, go, just go try it. I'm not going to do anything serious. I'm not going to get really involved. Just, that light just looks interesting. I've never been over by that light before. I'm just going to go look at that. You know, I heard that it was cool. Somebody else was talking about that light. Okay. And we, and we, and we, and we go. But what, what is at the end of the light? It's the big fish. Or if you prefer, it's the bug zapper, right? It's drawing you in for your destruction. If you give in to your lusts, they look attractive. They're so powerful. But you, you give in to your lusts, at the end of that, it's going to destroy you. It's going to hurt the people you love. If you give in to your greed and your covetousness, at the end is only destruction. If you leave Jesus to chase after any other thing that you think will bring you life, the end result is always the same. Death 
and destruction is the only possible outcome. There is no situation in which sin leads to life. There is no situation in which the little light just turns out to be a cool little light. You cannot domesticate this. The prostitute of Babylon is not Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. It's not the hooker with a heart of gold. Right? You can't domesticate. She cleans up fine and ends up being a pretty neat girlfriend. No. no. That's not what sin is. Sin is always destructive. It looks good on the outside, but inside it's pure evil. Don't be seduced. And if you need one more reason to avoid the woman, here it is. Number four, the world will be destroyed. You're probably like, how long is this sermon going to be? Because we haven't even gotten to the crazy parts. We spent all our time on the characters, haven't talked about the plot. The plot, though, is actually pretty simple. Um, Just like the main point of Revelation is pretty simple. The world, this sinful society that's opposed to God, the seductive tool of Satan, will be destroyed. In the end, Jesus wins and evil loses. That's what this whole chapter is about. The first verse, when the the angel comes, it says, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Okay, So this whole vision is about the judgment of the great prostitute. And at the end... Verses 16 and 17, it happens. The ten horns you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So he says this is all about the judgment of the prostitute. She's going to be destroyed, and she is. Now, in the middle of the chapter, there's some confusing stuff. But the basic plot is clear. Now, in the confusing stuff, the angel says to John, okay, you see this beast with the seven heads and the seven... Uh, the seven heads and the ten horns. He explains them. He says the seven heads are seven kings, and the ten horns are ten other kings. Now, lots of people have debated over what exactly those seven kings are and what the ten kings are and what they mean, and we can talk about those things later. But I want you to see that the main point is clear. Those seven kings and the ten kings are evil. How do we know they're evil? Because they're part of the beast. They're the beast's horns, the beast's heads. And what happens? In verse 16, we'll read it again. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Okay, so major plot point. The prostitute is riding the beast and then the beast turns on her. Okay, these seven kings, these ten kings, they turn on the prostitute, and they, it's like evil collapses under itself, and they attack the, the worldly system and destroy it. But then it's not like the beast wins, because the beast gets destroyed too, right? Did you see this in verse 12? It says, The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb. Okay, so the, the, the ten kings, the seven kings, whoever they are, they're trying to destroy now Jesus. Not, enough, not, not just enough to destroy the prostitute. They've got to destroy Jesus. So they make war on the lamb. But what happens? Verse 14, 
They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Right? So, again, if we stick to the clear storyline of this passage that we can all see, it's, it says, the woman is trying to seduce people, but eventually she'll be destroyed. The beast will destroy her, and then Jesus will destroy the beast. Evil loses, Jesus wins. That's what we need to know. Now, if we know who is going to win, then that should change the way we live now. In the great movie Back to the Future Part 2, Biff Tannen gets his hands on a sports almanac that predicts the winners of every major sporting event for the next 50 years. So what does Biff do? Do I have to say spoiler alert? Probably not. It's it's an old movie. Biff takes the information about who's going to win, and he bets on the winners. And he becomes fabulously wealthy. Wouldn't that be cool to have something like that? To know who was going to win, so that you could be able to, to order your life in such a way that you can bet on the winners? Okay, That's what we have here. We know who wins. Jesus wins. The world loses. So don't waste your time betting on a loser. Don't waste your life investing in the things of this world. Don't don't waste your life trying to get as much money and stuff as you can. Or just to have as much fun as you can. Or to get as much power and influence as you can. These things are passing away. Instead, invest your life in following Jesus, in being on the winning side, one of the called, chosen, and faithful followers of the Lamb. So how do we do that? You believe the gospel message. Okay? The offensive gospel message that says, first of all, you and I are all prostitutes. We're adulterous. We're the ones who are against God, abandoning God, uh, going our own way, finding life in any other place we can except Him. But God loves us so much. He is such a faithful husband that Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for our sins. The Lamb was slain for us so that we could be forgiven and by free grace being welcomed back into a relationship with God. That's what we do. We believe the gospel. And then it changes our lives. Because if you've been rescued and redeemed by a loving husband, what do you do? Do you go run off and cheat again? No. Instead, we want to be faithful. We want to, 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 to watch out for the temptations of this world. To say no to the temptations of the world. To see the prostitute for what she is. To see that she's beautiful but to also see behind that that in the end, she leads to death. So we make the choice every day, every moment, to say faithful to our husband, to say no to the world, and yes to Jesus. And as we do that, believing the gospel, we won't be destroyed, but we will reign with the Lamb forever. Father, thank you for showing us the truth. 
we are simple creatures and we are easily deceived. Um, protect us from the lies of the world and the lies of the devil that we would not chase after things that look pretty but lead to our destruction. Help us instead to chase after you and to find you that we might find life. In Jesus' name.